Welcome to another Macquarie Life Church podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. Right, just want to talk to you a little bit about Sunday night. Sunday night, we are rebuilding after COVID, and uh, we're going with a more intimate, raw feel. The good thing about Sunday night is that we've got permission to be creative, innovative, do anything we like, really, in the 8 and 10, haven't got a clue what we're doing. Uh, so, where I, I want to build a sense of family and identity. So, we feel like, no, this is my service and I'm known here. So, we're going to just try a few different things in a couple of months. We're going to have a supper every couple of months. I think the young adults are going to do snitties in, in a few weeks. And we're going to do competitions. Ros there. So, we're going to have table tennis competition and darts and all those things. So, that's what we're going to do. So, if you want to think, yeah, I want to contribute to the 5 p.m. and put my stamp on it, come and see me. All right. This is kind of a heavy topic tonight. Um, I tried to weave a few jokes in there, but gee, it was hard. <laughs> I've got one Mark Z joke for you. Um, so, I'm going to get the, yes, the Lego. Come bring the Lego. Thanks, JJ has built some Lego for me. <clears throat> so we all need to, de we're talking about deconstruction, and we all need to deconstruct our faith, I believe. Wow, you're good at Lego. Um, you know, the, my faith at 20 wasn't strong enough for what I faced at 30. My faith at 30 definitely wasn't developed enough for what I'm carrying now. So in all of our faith, whatever your faith looks like, as you journey through, through life and you experience things, you all of a sudden think, hey, that was, that was actually what my folks gave me. And it's not right. Going to get rid of that. Uh, that didn't, that didn't, that was too fixed. That was too fixed. That needed to be a bit more flexible. Um, hey, that's not carrying what, that's not wide enough for what I'm carrying at the moment, so I'm going to add. So actually, I think all through our life, we are actually deconstructing a little bit and rethinking. But when you go through major issues, you definitely deconstruct, and as you go, grow up, you deconstruct. Um, Everyone needs some deconstruction. Job deconstructed. Nicodemus, when he came to Jesus in the night, deconstructed. Even Jesus had to deconstruct some of the human traditions that had got into the religious system. And the religious leaders hated him for it. The Old Testament prophets deconstructed. The martyrs, the saints, the reformers deconstructed. It's not a new problem. And in fact, some of the reformers died in the process of deconstructing. However, there is another type of deconstruction that you've probably all come in contact with done by Western millennials who are using Christian heresies, actually, that we've all inherited. We live in a Judeo-Christian society, so we've all inherited Christian heresies and secularism to critique the church and scripture. And not all come through to the other side. These ones have a commitment to scepticism rather than being open to truth. The right deconstruction is the way of Jesus. Using truth to deconstruct lies. The second thing about deconstruction is that it's in the middle of a process. It is a normal process of maturation and it is not the end goal. The end goal is a deep trust in God 
and a deep transformation in us. And let me tell you this, and I've been around for a long time, not everybody gets there. The book of jo in the book of Job, we read he had a huge deconstruction. He lost everything, and then he got skin diseases. His friends mocked him. He questioned God. He sat in a heap of rubble and asked everyone to leave him alone. He doubted God. He wished he'd never been born. And after 38 chapters, he's finally ready to hear what God had to say. He was chucking a tantrum. He was blaming God. And this is my experience. When you chuck a tantrum... And you blame God. God doesn't interrupt you. He steps back. And you chuck more of a tantrum. Where are you, God? But he hides. And when you're ready, and you're humble, and finally ready to hear him, he speaks. And finally, in chapter 38, so after 38 chapters... God speaks, and God, you would think after all that suffering that God would show up and say, hey, Job, I'm really sorry for the suffering, for all you've been through, and here's an explanation, here's a sermon on why you suffered. Well, God doesn't do that, because God's not like you and I. <laughs> God just shows up, and for four chapters, gives Job a CV on who he is. Listen to what it starts with. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Hey, buddy, who is this that darkens my counsel? By words without knowledge. Prepare yourself like a man, Job. Grow up, Job, and get ready, because I'm just about to question you. Enough questions for you. I'm going to speak. I'm going to question you, Job, and you're going to answer me. Where were you, Job? when I laid the foundations of the earth. So let me try that one on you and on me. Where were we when God laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, God's taking on a mocking tone. <laughs> Tell me, Job, if you have understanding. And who determined its measurements? Surely you know. And it goes on and on and on. And finally, you know what happens to Job? He just surrenders and he says, you know what, God? I don't really care. You're a mystery and I'm going to trust you. And the work of restoration in Job's life begins. Psychologists tell us that there are three steps to maturity which help explain some of the deconstruction journey. The first process is construction and happens during childhood. In childhood, we are handed by your family of origin materials and a template that helps you construct a worldview. It tends to be black and white, rigid, self-righteous. We think we know more than what we do. And all the parents said, yes. But life hasn't tested our worldview. We don't have the maturity and capacity to wrestle honestly with the complex human issues. And if you're a teacher, you would understand that. In stage one, our bumper sticker says, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. It doesn't allow, allow for space, question, doubt. People who are not Christians also experience stage one. They are dogmatic, fixed in their beliefs. They believe what everyone else is saying on Instagram. Do what the culture tells them, don't question it. However, you can't stay zealous for that long. The second phase of deconstruction happens as you realize all the problems with your worldview. 
The template you were handed is skewered, biased by your culture and background. So you start to question, doubt, probe. What was I handed that was beautiful and true? And what was I handed that was skewered and corrupted? Stage three, if you get there, is reconstruction. You rebuild your worldview. And if you can adopt a humble position and learn from those that have gone before, you will spare yourselves a lot of pain and you will be able to reconstruct a worldview based on wisdom, sound mind and humility. A worldview that you can own, that you can carry with conviction, that can go against the crowd. One that will get you through pandemics, suffering and ultimately death. Let me tell you, ultimately you want a faith that can get you through death. Stage three is on the other side of wilderness and scepticism. There's no more need for rabbit trails. You don't mind not knowing everything. You can live contentedly with mystery. You're not in control and you don't need to control others. A lot of Christians get stuck at stage one or two. Not many traverse the difficult terrain out of doubt, challenge their own beliefs, let go of blame and disappointment. All of this takes humility and humility is in short supply. And if you don't believe me, just follow people on Twitter. As a church, we need to hold space for those who are in this season. And there won't be one season of deconstruction. There'll be a few. I deconstructed my faith in my late 20s and I had to do it on my own because it wasn't a conversation in the church. So we're doing two weeks on this. I'm going to speak tonight and then next week we're going to do a conversation with Mark, Jordan and Brody. We wanted to do more conversation style. And I think, George, if you're up for it, we might even do a bit of Q&A. Good. What's well, you? So anyway. Um, so... I heard this quote, you don't need to walk through the desert of scepticism alone. Deconstruction is not simple one size fits all. The following paradigm is from John Mark Comer. I'm going to give the credit to him. I'm not going to take the credit. But this is what he says, um, what, what happens, how deconstruction happens. He says there's an access point of three external points and three internal points. You will recognise some of these. And I just want to show you. This Venn diagram. Yes, I did my first Venn diagram. Grace, how good is that? Rosea. I was so proud of myself. I Googled how to do a Venn di diagram. Anyway, I could just talk for five minutes about my Venn diagram, but I won't. So here are the three external factors that cause deconstruction. The first one is cheap grace and low discipleship. When our culture and look at these because next week we, you might do a Q&A on some of these. When our culture and church is more interested in making converts than disciples, more interested in a crowd and a vibe than the mission of making disciples. The second is secular ideology, which attempts to replace the ways of Jesus. In our postmodern culture, most people, exactly what I said, are formed by secularism and Christian heresies. These ideologies are spread how? Digitally. And the school system supports them and gives and launches them and bursts and gives wind to them. The third is the breakdown of trust in spiritual leaders. It seems like every week there is a scandal and someone is being found out. How many stories can we take before we get disillusioned and we lose trust? 
So low discipleship, aggressive ideology and distrust are the three external factors that can cause deconstruction. The, in, the three internal ones are these, the lack of fear of God. With lack of fear of God comes an overestimation of ourselves and basically that's what God was doing for Job. He was putting a fear of God back into Job. So we have an overestimation of ourselves. We think, hey, I've been on the planet for 25 years. I know everything. I'm really clever. No, you're not. You've only been on the planet for 25 years. Um, <laughs> we construct the image of God. This is what humans do. We construct the image of God in the likeness of ourselves because we know it all. We deconstruct Christianity from a higher moral plane. We make God like us or like our latest celebrity. We want a God that doesn't challenge us or make us uncomfortable. As Nathan Finocchio says, we want a God who is a desperate boyfriend, who just loves us and thinks we're cute, loves win love wins. We all go to heaven and we get a popsicle after the baseball game. <laughs> the second internal thing is digital, digital input and low scripture. The Barna Research Group says a strong Christian millennial consumes 3,000 hours of digital content a year and only 150 of that content is Christian. So it's a 20 to 1 ratio. If our ratio and secular ideas to Jesus are 20 to 1, how are you going to face the enemy? When the enemy has a go at you, what weapons have you got to take the enemy on? The enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He's after you. If, you ever got a, if you've got a Christian, you've got a target on your back. He's after you, and he comes with lies. And how did Christ speak the enemy? Because he had a word of God stored up in his heart. Wounded heart. Yes, most people who are deconstructing have pain. Somewhere pain is underlying their undermining. What pain is covering my cynicism? Now listen, I'm not belittling pain because we have all had pain and there's, a lot, there's been a lot of pain, I know, even in this room. And Brody might even talk about that next week. Some of, I thought it was a good point. We had, we had a conversation this week and I thought it was good, Brody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jordan, I'll ask the question. It was, it was very good. Just Brody just shared with me time she's had to deconstruct. Very interesting. Most deconstructors are frustrated. So what is frustrating you? What is your pain? What is really frustrating or getting on your goat? You need a conversation. You've been hurt by a pastor. We've all been hurt by pastors. I'm sorry if I hurt you. Uh, we need to transcend the emotional experience. Don't write off all pastors. Don't write off all churches. Emotional maturity goes past the horrible experience. We can be offended by a Christian leader or the church or your mum and dad, they had wacky religious views or the pain of singleness and loneliness or spiritual abuse by a church. Matthew 11, 6 says this, Jesus says this, Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Some of us get really offended or get disappointed with God. Talk about that at the end. That was me. Luke 17, 1 says, Temptations, snares, offences, traps set to entice to sin will come. So they come. And offences come to all of us. And offences, the word for offence is another word for snare. So the enemy tries to get you offended and snared. And once you're offended, it's really hard to win. 
it's really hard to win an offended brother. If you've got a victim mentality or the world owes me, I tell you what, it's going to be really hard for you to come out of deconstruction. Are you willing to be reasonable and rational or do you want to stay a victim? Are you moving towards Christ or are you moving towards unbelieving culture? Where are you aligning? What crowd are you being pulled into? I've just asked Donna to come and share for five minutes. Donna's so good on another reason people deconstruct is not believing the Bible or the Bible contradicts and Donna Paulin is your girl. Thanks, Donna. Okay, hi everyone. All right, I've got five quick points on this, and Ros has given me five minutes. Can it, can I throw these, Ros? Yes. All right. Okay. Each point, I'm going to throw a block. Okay, it's just to make sure you're awake because we're speed. All right. Point one: When you're thinking about the reliability of Scripture, is my points up there? Right. Think about this. It's a reliable collection of historical documents. The accuracy of our New Testament can be tested. That's because there's over 24,000 manuscripts dated within 100 years of Christ's ascension. Six, and those manuscripts cover three different languages. Greek, Latin and... No, not, here, not Hebrew. I'll think of it. But anyway, within, let's just look at the 6,000 Greek manuscripts of our New Testament. And, you know, the great thing about having 6,000 is you can compare them against each other. Okay? So it's not just one and then one 100 years later. You can compare them against each other. And a study that was done comparing those has shown that our New Testament is 99.5% accurate in the copies that we have of those mini groups. How awesome is that? Um, there is no other comparison, right? No other comparison in any other literature. Religious, religious, that's a new word for you. Religious, secular, or otherwise. Okay. For our Old Testament accuracy, we need the help of the meticulous methodology of the Jewish people, okay? And then in 1948, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, okay, that helped us determine how accurate our Old Testament was. Because at that time, what was found were manuscripts that were 900 years older than anything we had ever had before. So they could compare how are we going with our translation of the Old Testament. And it was found to be just as accurate as the New Testament. In both situations, the only errors that were found were grammatical and they did not change the meaning of what was being said. That is pretty amazing. Critics might say, well, multiple translations confuse me and have eroded the original message. So just let me say this, a translation is not made from a translation. It's not a copy of a copy. A translation is done from an original text. And the smarter we get, <laughs> the better we get at this. And we need to remember that languages evolve, don't they? Words I use, my kids don't use anymore. All right? 
And the, when the King James Version was translated in the 1600s, okay, that language has now evolved. We don't talk like that anymore. Do you agree? Okay, so that's why you need fresh translations. But remember, they are translated from original manuscripts. And just because a translation may err, okay, I'm not saying there's none, may err in, a, in its like translation of something, that does not discredit the original text. Okay, got it? <laughs> Ros mentioned heresies. So in the first century, heresies were all based on mystical and symbol, um, symbolic interpretation of scripture, never contesting the actual scriptures themselves. Um, and then, of course, right up to today, religious divisions through the centuries are always based on the meaning of scripture, not on the acceptance of scripture. Okay, churches that come under our evangelical banner, um, we hold to the accuracy of scripture. Um, um, because what's, what unites us in all that the denominations that come under that banner is greater than what divides us. Amen. So, and wherever freedom of thinking is allowed, there will always be different denominations. That is a good thing in my mind. <laughs> So those that are outside of that evangelical banner, okay, and I'm just, I'll mention two, like the Catholic Church or the Mormon Church, they base their practices not just on Scripture but on extra writings, okay. They add to Scripture but they don't deny Scripture either. Step number two, who's... That was a left-hand throw as well, and no one took it up, so don't worry about that, Matt. Uh, it was written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Okay, when it comes to evidence, an eyewitness is a good thing, and more than one is even better. So according to 1 Corinthians 15, there was 500 people at one time saw Christ after he had risen from the dead. And Paul says, and most of those are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So that meant you can go and check that out and ask them if you want to. <laughs> okay, every miracle Jesus did was in front of people, mostly crowds, many of which hated him, hated his guts. And they would have done anything to disprove his claims. So far from being myth, fairy tale or legend, the Bible is full of dates, places, names, all of which are verifiable. Number three. Thank you. Archaeology continues to back up the Bible. So I'm just giving you points. You can look into these more. Over 23,000 archaeological digs directly related to the historical account of the Bible. It's so accurate. It's used by a, as a guide by secular archaeologists. Um, it's good to note that while thousands of archaeological digs can um, confirm the Bible, there has never been one, okay, that has ever disproven the Bible. Number four, it contains prophecy. Over 2,000 predictions that have been fulfilled with 100% accuracy. You want to get rid of a prophet? Get them to predict something that doesn't actually happen. Okay? 
No other religious writing or any writing contains prophecy because only God knows the future. The last thing I'll mention is the signature of God. For me, that's the supernatural knowledge that only God could know that is woven in the pages of our Bible. Things like uh, things about the earth, about space, about astronomy, biology and physics, sanitation, viruses, which is pretty current, um, things that were not discovered or known about by science at that time are just threaded all through our scriptures. The Bible can defend itself and it has done for 2,000 years. You know, no other book has been attacked or tested like the Bible, yet it remains today the most widely read and published book in the whole world. I think I missed a point. There we go. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. I love it when Donna talks about the Bible. She just lights up, mate. She's got electricity running through her. Okay, I'm going to get the musos to come back. So just going to share last couple of minutes about my journey. I arrived into my 28th year, baby, Daniel Zare, toddler, Beck Wildsmith, married to Mr Manly Warringah. Do you know that Mark Zare was runner-up in Mr Manly Warringah? Uh, we were associate pastors and I was disappointed with God. The zeal I had had when I was 20 had faded. My life didn't look how I envisaged envisaged it. I had observed some spiritual leaders close up and they had weaknesses and they weren't what I wanted them to be. And the church didn't talk about the wilderness season. So, And I couldn't talk to Mark Zare. Mark Zare has never been disappointed or blamed or accused God. Never. So these were four smart things I did on my own. I stayed in the house. I stayed at church. I kept positioning myself where faith, hope and love was. I kept my fear of God. I knew there was an eternity. I'd been in a really bad car accident and stared death in the face. And I knew that my journey into scepticism could take me into an, to a journey, an eternity without God. And guess what? I didn't really want to risk it. And I deconstructed my own pride. I dared to stand with God against myself and challenge myself. I read Job a lot. And lastly, I found a book called Disappointment with God. I found someone who was having a conversation about being disappointed with God and they understood what I was going through. And I'm just going to read what Philip Yancey says at the end. It's a bit deep and a bit heavy, so George, you'll have to dig me out of this at the end. It is a peculiarly, peculiarly 20th century story, this one, and it is almost too awful to tell. It's about a boy of 12 or 13 who, in a fit of crazy anger and depression, got hold of a gun and fired it at his father, who died not right, right away but soon afterward. When the authorities asked the boy why he had done it, he said that it was because he could not stand his father, because his father asked too much of him, because he was always after him. And then later on, after he had been placed in a house of detention somewhere, a guard was walking down the corridor late one night when he heard sounds from the boy's room and he stopped to listen. And the words that he heard the boy sobbing out in the dark were, 
I want my father. I want my father. Frederick Brunner says that this story is a kind of parable of the lives of all of us. Modern society is like that boy in the house of detention. We have killed off our father. Few thinkers or writers or movie makers or television producers take God seriously anymore. We've outgrown him. The modern world has accepted the wager and bet against God. There are too many unanswered questions. He has disappointed us once too often. It is a hard thing to live uncertain of anything and yet sobs can still be heard. Muffled cries of loss such as those expressed in literature and film and modern art. The alternative to disappointment with God seems to be disappointment without God. The centre of me, said Bertrand Russell, is always and eternally, he was an atheist, always and eternally a terrible pain, a curious wild pain, a searching for something beyond what the world contains. I see that Philip Yancey says this, I see that sense of loss in the eyes of my friend Richard, even now. He says he doesn't believe in God, but he keeps bringing up the subject. He's protesting too loudly. From where comes this wounded sense of betrayal if no one is there to do the betraying? I want you to close your eyes. Father, we come before you tonight, and it's good to think. And to, deep, deep, to dig deep and be honest in our souls. And I, I just pray that over these next two weeks, God, you will unravel us. Father, so we can rebuild with truth. And Father, give us wisdom so this church can always be a place for a conversation about these things. Doubts, unbelief, pain the Bible. And while you've got your eyes closed, I want to give anyone here an opportunity to invite Christ into their life. If you've never invited Christ into your life, but you say, Ros, I'm here tonight and there's a stirring in my heart. I tell you what that is. That is Jesus by the Holy Spirit knocking on the door of your heart, giving you an invitation to invite him into your life. And so many of us in this room have done that. So while every eye is closed, if you would like me to pray for you tonight, I just want you to shoot your hand up and say, Roz, would you pray for me? While I look around the room, anyone here tonight, you say, Roz, can you pray for me? Thanks, darling. Good on you. Anyone else? Okay, we're going to pray with this young guy. I'm going to pray and you just pray in your heart after me, all of us. Father, I come home tonight. Father, I'm sorry for all my mistakes. I want to come home and I want Jesus to come and live in my life. I open my heart. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Walk with me. Show me how to live and fill me with this spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. And that young guy, if you want to come and see me afterwards, I'd love to talk to you and pray for you. Thanks, George. Sorry to leave it on such an intense moment. <laughs> Thank you for listening. We hope you have enjoyed this message. For more information, please visit mccroylifechurch.com.au.